Hello. Welcome to my Clark Reads Books podcast of Saints and Rascals, History in the First Person. This is Part 2, Avicenna. There is the sound of Arabic music, lutes, tambourines, drums, singing, in the distance as in another room. A dark, short-bearded Arab enters from one side with a broad silver wine goblet and a jug. He's wearing an ornately embroidered robe and patterned turban, a long swatch of which falls down over his neck and is tossed over the other's shoulder. He's laughing and humming. (laughs) He notices us and passes on through. Then immediately he steps back in and looks carefully at us, his audience. He genuflects according to the Muslim protocol. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful. Akbar, what did you put in my wine? Are you actually there? You, my listeners? Remarkable. I would say that you are not the normal vision one gets when he is drunk on the spirit of wine. Well, the Sufis say that one sees God, actually, that the wine is the love of God, and that we are the cup. Perhaps it is gas. That is, you are the result of bad digestion. Tomorrow I shall give myself an enema of poppy seeds. But whatever. You are here? In that case, allow me to introduce myself to my guests from the wine goblet. Abu Ali al-Hussein ibn Abdallah ibn Hassan ibn al-Ibn Sina. You can call me Avicenna. That is what the Latin and Greek-speaking Europeans will call me in years future. I was born in the year 979 of your Christian reckoning, dream guests, and I died in 1037 at the age of 58. Did I say what I just said? I hope I remember this tomorrow. And who is Avicenna? Among other things, I am principally a physician. A doctor, at least that is what I am paid for. But as physicians from time immemorial are wont to do, I dabble in this and that and consider myself an expert in everything. My, such honesty. The wine has certainly taken me up tonight. I have been a professional physician, self-taught, I might add, since the age of 16, when I was taken in service to cure the ruler of Bukhara, the Prince Nub ibn Mansur. I was quite self-confident then. I probably would have lost my head if I hadn't healed him, or lost something else rather south of my head. Medicine, I would say, is not one of the difficult sciences. I excelled in it in a very short time, reading by 16 and a half years of age, everything written on the subject, and also observing other physicians at work. I don't know about you and your time, but by 16, I could read everything written on medicine. Since I became 17, other physicians began to read the subject of medicine under me while I went on to practice medicine. Oh, and law, and to study logic and philosophy, Ah, the only true pursuit of an educated man, wouldn't you agree? Well, wouldn't you? That is what 16- and 17-year-olds pursue today and in your day, correct? Philosophy, the study of knowledge and theology. 
Me, I learned everything of the basics of knowledge by seventeen and a half. I pretty much read everything that was written. Therefore, I had to start writing my own texts. I wrote some twenty volumes on medicine alone, eventually. My dream vision shows me you are a people from a far advanced time. Therefore, you must be also far advanced in the exercises of the mind. Advanced from the year 1000, I mean. Perhaps you are so far advanced you've forgotten not only me and the paltry few million words I wrote on medicine, philosophy, mathematics, music, physics, astronomy, and my poetry. Not only my inconsequential contribution to the golden age of East Islam. Perhaps you have forgotten, all of us, that there even was a golden age of Islam in Central Asia around the end of the first millennium. Ah, boy. If you have forgotten us, perhaps I should tell you a little of our history. Persia is not Arabia. Persians are not Arabs. We had a great civilization long before Muhammad, blessed be his name, awoke the Arabs. Our first great leader, Cyrus, even helped found human rights, the idea that humans have rights. But that was after, of course, he conquered Media, Lydia, and Babylon. And Cyrus freed the Jews who had been enslaved in Babylon. We Persians, you see, we never liked this concept of slavery. We never kept slaves. Anyway, we are a different people. We were conquered by the young Macedonian general Alexander the Great during his lifetime of world conquest, but of course did not become Muslim until we were conquered by the successor to Muhammad. So we are Muslim, but not Arab. Different language, different culture, different. But I was talking about me, talking to you, my guests of the wine cup. Most people drink to sleep, I drink to stay awake. I work and teach all day. I drink and sing songs at night. And then I solve my most difficult problems during the sweet repose of sleep. I wake, praise Allah, in the morning with solutions to my mathematical or philosophical conundrums. And then give alms to the poor to celebrate. Just ask them, I do. Just as you do, I imagine. Give alms to the poor when things go well for you? Yes? I said I read everything written about knowledge by 16 years old. I didn't say I understood it all. I read Aristotle's Metaphysics, in Persian translation, I'm sorry to say, lazy, you see. I read his Metaphysics 40 times, memorized it even. I, but I didn't understand a word of it until I read Al-Farabi's work on Aristotle. I slept on that, as I mentioned, is my way. The next day I finally understood Aristotle. Oh, did the poor gain that day. I am a Persian Persian. I was born near Bukhara in the far east of Persia. There were two Buddhist monasteries near us, so you can see that China and India had long influenced the area before the Prophet Muhammad, blessed be his name, converted us to Islam 300 years ago. I learned much of my medicine, in fact, by watching the ancient Chinese system of treatment, and then I improved upon it. I live in the waning years of the Abbasid Caliphate, founded by descendants of Muhammad's uncle. They dwell in their new imperial capital, Baghdad. My land, Persia, has made a few contributions to the culture and history of Islam. 
The Arabs of Saudi Arabia obviously gave their sense of holy mission. The Christians in Syria are the best translators as they are surrounded by languages on all sides. The Greeks, well, obviously they gave their Hellenistic heritage. And of course, India. Ancient India has contributed its wisdom and also its Hindu numerals. The Hindu number system was still somewhat new when I was a child. You know, one, two, three, four, the decimal system based on one to ten, and then later that wonderful idea of zero. I learned my decimal numbers, my counting, from a vegetable seller on our corner, and from that new Arabic invention, al-Jabr. Oh, um, what do you call it? Algebra. Have you ever seen how the Greeks and Romans had to count? C's and M's and V's and L's? Unbelievable. Worse, every time you would cross a national border, there would be a new counting method. That was my time. Why did I read so much? Why did I study numbers and mathematics? To take my mind off the terror. Throughout my whole life, the world of the East has been in torment. And before me, and I imagine after me, but all willing not into your era. The Byzantines before us at Constantinople fought desperately to hold back the Arabs, but the Arabs finally took Constantinople, and now we in my time fight to hold back the Turks. The Turks, under the son of a diseased camel, Sultan Mahmud, have invaded Afghanistan and have already seized all of Persia from the Persian Gulf to the river Oxus and Punjab. They would overwhelm us, but the Turks now have to fight. The new scourge, the Mongols. Me, I am a Persian, not a Turk. I'm sorry, but I'm not. So when Sultan Mahmud at his Afghan palace in Ghazni heard that the Prince of Khwarazm, oh, that's between the Aral Sea and Karakum. Surely you've heard of Karakum. Anyway, Prince al-Mamun had a circle of Illuminati at his court in Khwarazm. Illuminati the illuminated, the wise ones, just what any great prince would want at his court. Al-Mamun had the great Al-Biruni, Masi, and others. And excuse me, but that included me. Well, when Sultan Mahmud in Afghanistan, the jealous Turk, heard that another prince had more Illuminati than he did, he ordered all of us to come immediately to his court on pain of death. Well, what would you have done? Would you have jumped on your camel and gone there? Al-Biruni went. But then he had to follow Mahmud on his military campaigns against India. Of course, the sultan's court follows him wherever he goes. But I remembered what happened when this dog, Sultan Mahmud, conquered the city of Rai, where I had happened to have been living not much earlier. He gibbeted all the Christian Carmathian monks, one each hanging from a tree. Worse, he had fifty camel loads of books burnt under each tree. Oh, yes, that was Sultan Mahmud's love of wisdom. You tell such a man as that, that the earth goes around the sun, that it is tilted at an angle. I studied this astronomy, and that is true. It does go around the sun. Did you think you Europeans discovered this? But tell Mahmud this, and he'll serve your liver to a visiting diplomat the next day. Therefore, I didn't go to him, but more on that later. Instead, I traveled from city to city, escaping Mahmud and other potentates like him. Mahmud circulated a picture of me all over Persia, ordering that I be seized and sent to him. Perhaps he had stomach aches and thought I could cure him. I stayed for a while at the court of Kabus, but Kabus was murdered. 
court intrigue. You cannot escape it wherever you go. I've had to travel on and on, but as the Sufis say, you will never escape from yourself until you slay it. But we don't have time to slay ourselves. That is to slay the unthinking beast that rules the normal mind. In order to be born into a true life of the mind, we have no such luck because we men are too busy slaying one another. You dream people of the far future, you must have learned how to eat properly, exercise properly, diet and fast properly in order to live clean, full, healthy lives. Am I correct? Let me look at you, you who are listening to me from the future. Hmm. This is a bad omen. The people of a thousand years from now look worse than my own time. Except for your teeth. What do you do to get such orderly teeth? Medicine is really quite simple. As I have defined it in the book I wrote on the subject, it is the art of removing an impediment to the normal functioning of nature. He who claims he can improve on nature is a fool. This book I wrote, The Canon of Medicine, well, I am still writing it. Actually, I've written only one million words so far. I started it some years ago when I was hiding in the basement of a friend, sheltering me from Mahmoud's thugs. I cared for the friend's ill daughter, and we both liked to drink wine and sing. Up until then, there had not been one text on medicine. When I taught myself the subject, I had to read dribs and drabs here and there. Hippocrates, Galen, Herophilus, Phileno... It seems few actual practicing doctors ever wrote down what worked. I read the work of Galen, the Greek. I presume the Romans forced him to write out his theories. Like the Egyptians long before him, he was fascinated by man's pulse. He described a hundred pulse types, pulse strength, speed, frequency, hardness, or softness. As a boy, I liked his names for the pulses. The gazelle, the crawling ant, the worm, the mouse-tailed. From Hippocrates, 600 years before him, he learned to reject the gods as the source of disease. It was Hippocrates who said, Each illness has a nature and a power of its own. None is hopeless or incapable of treatment. Hippocrates and the Greeks described the body as consisting of four humors that are in balance or imbalance with one another. Health is when they are in proportion. Pain is when they are not. The four humors, everyone knows what they are. Hot, moist blood, seated in the heart. Its season is spring. A man with a blood humor dominant in his body is called sanguine. We associate blood with the element fire. Opposite is cold, dry, black bile, seated in the spleen. Its season is autumn. A black bile man is melancholic. Black bile relates to the element earth. Third is the cold, moist phlegm of the brain, a wintry humor. Its personality is phlegmatic. It is associated with the element water. The fourth humor is hot, dry, yellow bile, the liver's humor that rules in summer and which produces the choleric man. It is related to the element air. All the properties of mankind can be summarized in the interrelations of these four substances. It is very clear. But I also read or listened to Buddhist monks read and translate for me ancient Chinese works. The Chinese system is very subtle. They work not with disease or one ailing body part. They work with a balance of all parts, the living mixture of masculine and feminine, what they call yang and yin. 
the forceful and the receiving. All the fluids and organs and feelings of the body, the Chinese associate with a continuous communication of parts with parts. If you have one part that is hurting, it may be because another part is upset with it and has attacked it. And this second part may be misbehaving because it is starving or drunk or something. As a Chinese doctor, you treat the whole relationship, not just one part, not just the symptom or effect. Like I said, it is very subtle. According to our Chinese cousins, the body is a city that just continues. It has no start and no end. Therefore, as a doctor of the city, so to speak, you adjust the harmony of the whole city to help its individual citizens. You complain to a Chinese physician of a cough, and he will scratch your foot. I learned much from the Chinese. But I was even more interested in medical practice. And like I said, I started practicing from 16 years old. There are, after all, only so many things that can affect the body. Heat, cold, dryness, moisture. And these things fluctuate, just like the seasons of the year, the times of the day, the ages of man himself. There are only so many ways things can enter or leave the body. And to feel healthy, one must let things enter and leave at the proper rate. If something gets stuck anywhere, or contrarily, if it moves in too much of a rush, well, we all know those symptoms. For example, let me summarize the symptoms of too much, of a superabundance of each of these four humors. Overabundance of heat. One feels uncomfortably hot. There is a bitter taste in the mouth. One makes rapid gestures, is excitable, too lively, excessively thirsty. His guts burn, the pulse is quick, and one can't tolerate hot food. Cold relieves these symptoms of disease. Overabundance of cold. One doesn't want fluids. Food sits in the intestines unmoving. It is hard to get such a person excited. His or her gestures are slow. The joints are weak. He or she dislikes cold and craves heat. The pulse is sluggish. And, of course, such person hates winter. Someone suffering from an overabundance of moisture experiences puffiness, excessive salivation. The nose runs, diarrhea, swollen eyes, painful digestion, laziness. The pulse is soft and wide. Lastly, overabundance of dryness. One experiences insomnia, has rough, rough, dry skin. Hot water and oil are quickly absorbed into the skin. And such a dry person dislikes autumn. How does one treat these and the thousand other symptoms of a sick person? Well, there are two things to look at. It has to do with who you are treating. And if it is a powerful prince who has a stomach ache, you can quickly treat the symptom, the ache, or you can move more thoroughly address the cause or root of the symptom. If treating the cause makes the ache worse for a while, and if your prince happens to be impatient, he may cut your head off. This is why so many people prefer charlatans. They want to feel good now. To hell with tomorrow. A friend of mine, the great physician, Al-Razi, wrote a book on this, Why People Prefer Quacks and Charlatans to Skilled Physicians. But what about this prince with a stomachache we were talking about? If you've only treated the symptom and it comes back later, maybe worse? Eventually the prince will still have your head. Thus doctors, in my time, we stay on the move. If I had some of you in front of me, we could look at practical examples, but they are not all that hard to spot. 
Someone young and athletic may often be manifesting hot and moist symptoms. Someone older and cerebral might be hot and dry, whereas unathletic and phlegmatic people often have cold and moist problems, and the old and or frail cold and dry symptoms. But a true physician looks not just to the body, but to the spirit. It is, after all, the soul, that personal spirit unique to each individual that is the true healing agent. So you look for signs of that vital force which we Persians call Ruh. It is the thing in man that closest approaches the likeness of celestial beings. It is a luminous substance. You've all seen it. Some people glow with it, with life. It is a ray of light coming not from the body, but from the being. But I am straying into philosophy, my true love these days. Come, let me look out a window at some of you walking below and see what I see. Hmm, similar, but dissimilar. Oh, most of you probably know you need more exercise. The rest need massage. Good hard massage, not softly, softly like for a prince, but hard and thorough like for a peasant. Some of you need a change of environment, more sun. All of you need to change your diet. Most of you look to be already on drugs, to sleep, to stay awake, to calm down. Your skin tone shows it and how you move. And what are those glass circles you wear in front of your eyes? Most of you need to get things out of your body through one or more of the four systems of elimination. Vomiting, evacuating your bowels, bloodletting through cutting or leeches on the stomach or back, or cupping, you know, heating cups and then placing them on your skin to cool and at the same time suck out toxins. You all look toxic. You should have cupping at least ten hot, hot cups put on your back. Nevertheless, you all look sick enough to be rather civilized. Few of you have that barbarous, excessive health. And if not wine, you're drinking something like it. A lot of something like it. One question. Do you men always wear such tight pantaloons? Doesn't it squeeze your eggs? And what is the purpose of the noose around your necks? Some kind of moral symbol of shame? Funny shoes, too. Bouncy. And what are those stilts the women are walking on? By the way, as you are a dream audience, what language do you speak? Do all my listeners here speak Arabic? Persian, then? Greek? My goodness, those are the only civilized languages of the year 900. Pardon me, excusing Chinese and Sanskrit. Even before the blonde-haired northern Goths sacked Rome and the Romans fled to Constantinople to set up a second emperor, their Latin was declining. It is not spoken much anymore up in the north, and instead all these other barbaric dialects and offshoots, what will you call them? Spanish? French? What do they wear in those northern Gothic climes? Bear suits? It's too cold to go naked like the African blacks. They speak Greek in Constantinople, of course. What? English? English? What language is that? Never heard of it. If you don't speak one of the civilized, sophisticated tongues, how can you discuss the important things of life and of the universe? You see, we ran out of words in both Arabic and Persian. As long as we talked of things in the compass of the Holy Quran, our own language sufficed. But when a few years ago we began, well, how to say it, when we began to reason, but Arabic, I must be honest, beyond the revealed word of God to be found in the Holy Quran, 
or the Torah, the Hebrew and Christian Testaments, beyond revelation, we Persians began, well, to reason, to seek rational answers to questions. That is when we ran into difficulty. Arabic was once the language of goat herds. Persia was a great empire 1,200 years ago, but after the Greek Alexander of Macedonia conquered us, we fell in love with the language of his troops and officers with Greek. We needed words to describe new concepts, and we had to turn to the Greeks, who a thousand or fifteen hundred years earlier than us set an example by loving their minds more than their pocketbooks. Well, maybe they did. Right now in Persia, in my time, Greek translations are more precious to us than gold. Literally, it's true. New words expand our horizons. Most wealthy families I know pay translators a yearly stipend to bring new works and sometimes new words to us. There's always a big party when a new work of Aristotle or Pythagoras, Plato, Hippocrates, whoever, is to be read. Now that's entertainment. Wouldn't you agree? Staying up till dawn, listening to and arguing with your friends over the first reading of something new in ethics or philosophy? Oh, I'm, I'm sure in your modern times you have found even loftier heights for the mind to explore. But philosophy, the great Arabian Kindi, he said, metaphysics is highest in honor and rank because the science of dealing with the cause is more honorable than science dealing with the caused. Philosophy is my love. The philosopher who also said, we should not be timid in praising the seeking of truth from wherever it may come even if it be from distant races and people different from us. Al-Razi, remember him, the one who wrote about doctors and quacks? I wouldn't go so far as he, at least, not publicly. Al-Razi said, There is no necessity for profits whatsoever. Any man who is sufficiently endowed with intelligence can use it to fashion his own life and to achieve his own salvation. (laughs) Men have lost their heads for saying less than that or been boiled in oil. You know, they put you in the cold oil and then heat it. More prolonged education for your benefit that way. But this is the true adventure, the adventure of reasoning out the truth. Which reminds me, I I have to get back to my party. We are debating the nature and existence of the soul. After drinking a skin of wine, I have come up with the proof of the existence of the soul. Shall I share my triumph with you before I go in and lay them low with my wit? By soul, we have argued out, we mean, the form and source essence of the body, which controls and gives the body its character. We're still arguing, but I believe that the soul is a separate substance capable of existing independently of the body. Now, how to prove its existence? This separate substance that is you. I did it a while ago and saw that this proof can be repeated by others. You can't argue against it. Now do this. Yes, you. Literally do as I say here. Turn to yourself and ponder. Shut your eyes and suspend yourself as if free from all form and substance. While doing this, I ask you, are you ever forgetful of yourself? Even in your sleep, even under drink, the consciousness of the inner self is never absent. You are always aware at some level that you are there being aware. Now, imagine yourself without a body. You will perceive nothing about yourself except 
that you exist, right? Well, I ask you, with what do you perceive yourself in such a state, or before it, or after it? And what is the perceiving faculty? The answer is, you perceive yourself without needing any other faculty than you yourself. Further, if you were to lose this flesh and have some other existence, you would still be what you are. Keep your eyes shut. Certainly you cannot perceive yourself as a a brain or as a heart. These things would have to be dissected to be independently perceived. So what you perceive when you perceive your own existence is something other than flesh. Ha! I have proved the existence of the soul. The next question to be proved is, is the soul immortal? But that's a question for our party next week. Can you see why I love the life of the mind? Can you see why I wanted to be free always to ask questions and answer them honestly without permission of a sultan? That's why I refused to attend on Sultan Mahmud. We actually had to flee into the desert. My friend Abu Ghal al-Masahi and I fled out into the night, dressed as camel drivers. But our night departure was a mistake. We could not see the incoming weather. When we were two days out, a mother storm out of the old days swept over us. We didn't have to tell the camels what to do. They stood together and turned away from the storm. I guess a camel doesn't care how much sand blows up its... Excuse me. But a mother storm blows not just sand, but rocks and bushes and trees. It can take the hide off anything exposed. So that day, as the sand began to cut into us, making a sound like the gnashing of genie cast into the underworld, our camels lay down on their sides and let the sand pile up over them. We lay beside them, flat on the ground. The wind howled. The sand was in our mouths. The sand was in our ears. Masihi finally couldn't stand it anymore, lying there like a lizard, like a toad. He wanted to see what was happening. He started to look up. No, I hollered, for the love of Allah, don't. But he didn't hear me. Or he did, but was too sand stupefied to care. He pulled himself up to peer over his camel's side. Immediately a blast of sand needles put out his eyes. He screamed and stood further up. The soulless demon of the wind then lifted Masihi up and drew him bodily away. The great Masihi, may he rest in peace, in paradise, died rather than become a Turkish pawn. I swore then in his memory never to abandon the pursuit of freedom. True story. Thank you most kindly, creatures of my dream, creatures of the wine goblet, for your attention. I know you are not angels because clearly I see that you all need to improve your diet. But if not angels, perhaps you are a little angelic. I must get back to my party. Whoever and wherever you are, in the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful. Thank you for listening. If you liked Saints and Rascals, Avicenna, Please let me know. 
I am Clark Carr, and my email address is clarkrncarr at gmail.com. clarkrncarr at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part three, Jan Amos Comenius. Until then. <laughs>